My name is Richard Morellis, and I want to welcome you to the Prison Post. This is your podcast for conversations surrounding the need to reform prisons from the perspective of formerly incarcerated people, community members, and leaders in the restorative justice movement. The Prison Post will feature an episode every Wednesday with people who are in the fight to restore lives and heal communities. Welcome to the Prison Post, everybody. My name is Richard Mireles, uh, also known as Morales, but I'll have to correct everybody for the rest of my life on how the proper pronunciation is, sort of like I guessed here today. Most people say Amanda Carrasco, but it's really Carrasco. Um, and uh, always a pleasure to have my co-host, uh, Jason Bryant. It's been a minute, brother, but oh, good to have you back. Where's the Where's the interesting adjectives? Like you have like know, effervescent, the, uh, the industrious. Well, this is our 43rd episode. And, and, <laughs> You're uh, running out of adjectives. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I've used at least 41. Yeah. So, yeah but, uh, Somebody said see. Rich a Dictionary. So I'll tell <laughs> yeah, you this, yeah. though. When we arrived at Darling New Media Podcast Studio today, I yeah. said Jason will be here in a, shortly in a couple of minutes. And uh, Nate said... The Jason Bryant. The. <laughs> so that's a new one. Just the Jason Bryant. He's switching now to articles. Oh, okay. he's run out of adjectives. So he'll okay. go to articles. There the Jason go. Bryant. Absolutely. As so. long as I'm not speaking in the second person. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. There's a good Seinfeld episode yeah. on yeah. that, right? <laughs> so we have here all the way from Canada, Amanda Carrasco. Carrasco. Uh, so good to have you here. Uh, so good to see you smile. I mean, Originally from Vancouver, but all the here, all the way from now, uh, from Ontario, the outskirts of Ontario, and uh, the land of what we, what I have been introduced on Christmas, or was it my birthday? I think it was my birthday. You sent a, a box from Canada of some unique goodies, <laughs> and one of them was um, what we call they're called ro- rockets, what we would call Smarties, and then also. <laughs> Uh, what were the Cheetos called? The Hawkins Cheesies. Cheesies. Hawkins, we have Cheetos. Hawkins. We have uh, very Chester Cheetos Cheetos here, and they call them Cheesies there. They're like five times cheesier. And, and very salty. And something called ketchup chips. Oh, what yeah. What are ketchup chips? They're, they're very <laughs> Canadian, yeah. but I personally think they're disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But they are Canadian, so I had to bring them down and be like, well, but the maple syrup. That's our redeeming thing, right? You love the maple syrup. That was oh, the maple syrup. Was maple syrup, very Canadian, thick, sweet. I'm sure it's so good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But we've never had a guest from Canada before, and you're you're actually came from the farthest away that we've had anybody, uh, even live. It's great to have you live in studio. We could say a lot about you, and I'll share some of that in a minute. But um, so, what's your what have you been here two or three days? What's that been like so far? Yeah, it's been it's been amazing. I mean, uh, you know. We'll talk more about, you know, how we've gotten all connected, but um, through COVID and everything, everything's online, which has presented great opportunities so that I can do things from where I am. But then you see people on a screen or you just talk to them on the phone. And so when I came in October, I had the opportunity to meet a whole bunch of you in person, which was phenomenal for your incredible wedding. And then... um you know, coming back again, I've been able to meet, you know, a couple more people that are in person. And I was really scared the first time because I thought, what is it going to be like to meet people in person that you've only ever seen online? I don't even online date. So like, I don't know what even that's like. So that was really weird. And so to build these relationships and then come here and go, oh my gosh, like everything that I have felt, like how close we've come and all that stuff is like times a thousand in person, you know, because it was like, is it going to feel real? Is it going to be weird? Is it going to be worse? And it was better. So it's it's been That's amazing, great. yeah. I, I heard that uh, since you've been here in the states, 
that you've flown without a plane? <laughs> I did. I did. Interesting. We, we need to I'd contact them before we release to see if they'll sponsor us or something. But yeah, yesterday I went with one of our, our teammates' moms who is 72 years old. She's an amazing woman. She's like my life goals. She's just a wonderful person all around. And uh, I had texted her and I said, do you want to go skydiving with me? Like indoor skydiving? And she just instantly, yes. Yeah, I'm in. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. So I love her. She's so adventurous. And so, yeah, we went to iFly yesterday and we did two, um, you know, flies and it was just, it was incredible. Like the, the way that it feels and I wasn't as nervous to get in. Once you're in, I wasn't scared and you just focus on what you're doing and you're, you're in that moment, right? How, how high do you go? Oh, that's a good question. And I don't know, but it was taller than Rich's house. Like I'm terrible with, with those types of, you know, like yeah, it was yeah. 50 feet, and especially now, like I'm metric, right? I'm Canadian. So if I sure. told you, well, it's like a kilometer high. What's yeah. that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've seen that in a book one time. Yeah. <laughs> Last time I was here, we used my phone to get directions to a place and it would be like in two kilometers, turn left. And Matt goes, yeah. what the heck is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we use miles that? down here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the rest of the world uses something else. We, <laughs> miles and meters. Yeah. We, we keep it just out of uh, arrogance alone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Gotta be unique. No, but um, you're, you're talking about uh, Judy. I mean, she's the, uh, somebody I admire as well. Three weeks um, out of prison. She came to the transitional house that I was in, picked me up, took me to a wonderful breakfast, and we actually, I ordered something that I had never ordered before, poached eggs. She's like, oh, you got to try it. And then um, she ordered huevos rancheros, and then she's like, well, I'll tell you what, we'll split our breakfast. So she got half of my plate, I got half of hers, and then- So you were halfway <laughs> happy. <laughs> yeah, not really. Uh, but she's just sweetheart, the queen of hosting- mm. The queen of uh, charcuterie, she's the one who introduced me to the, <laughs> to the whole experience and uh, an amazing woman. But something interesting you said right now was, had it not been for COVID, we may not have met. I think that's true for a lot of people that we've sure. met, uh, including uh, a lot of the associates in our program. If if it hadn't been for COVID, um, we would have missed out on a lot of relationships. So, mm. yeah, welcome to the Prison Post. Thanks. It's an amazing pleasure to be here. <laughs> it was exciting. You got anything else, Jay, before we jump in? His- no, go ahead and tell, <laughs> tell, our, tell our, our, our guests about our guest. Okay, all right. I want to share a little bit of a formal introduction about Amanda, um, and we'll see, we'll see what happens here. This is uh, Amanda Carrasco. Uh, she has a lot of passion for believing in people who face challenging circumstances, and that's part of the reason how we met. And she equips them to meet their goals, which comes from her own um, life experience with multiple traumas. She's an advocate for human rights through restorative justice and government policy. And um, she's definitely a volunteer for CROP, been about a year volunteering now. Getting so. close, yeah. Close, close to a year. And a political advocate locally and abroad, which included serving, serving, that's how I first saw her on Facebook, serving as an honorary vice consul for the Republic of Kenya. And I, I think I first saw you on, on Facebook as a... Uh, Nangila Wanje. Yeah. Nangila Wanje. Wanje. Yeah. Yeah. It means that special one's mine. And it was a name given oh. to me by some senators in Kenya. So, Wonderful. Yeah. Yep. And um, so she, well, that was one of the, one of the for our first interactions. And I was like, you know, I, you know, normally I see a name, uh, a name like that. I'm thinking like, what's going on here? Um, but um, I, I didn't know if it was so. If it was um, like someone trying to, I get a bunch of <laughs> um, spam, yeah. uh, you know, people have another account telling me they're a friend of mine. And, but anyways, but 
you were the real deal. And also <laughs> something cool about Amanda is, well, she's the only person that I've met that holds three master's degrees. Uh, a lot of our guests know that Jay holds two, so don't get offended, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> three master's degrees I'm in leadership. one up here. <laughs> <laughs> three master's degrees in leadership, public policy, and the last one was law. Congratulations. Mm. Just recently, yeah. right? Yes. And now you're going to be starting a doctoral program pretty soon. We're looking at that, yeah, the different options. Um, there's there's a really cool place that does uh, PhDs of restorative justice, so we're looking at, at opportunities. A few other things. She owns a company in Canada that works with students from around the world and builds community while enhancing their education. She teaches politics and government for a university in Vancouver, British Columbia. E- but even more than all those accomplishments, her greatest accomplishment is one being called one by one single word. What might that word be? Mom, mom, that's what's up. Right, we're talking about Judy, <laughs> yeah. the mom, mother right? of Your four, mom, richest mom, like most, the mom, most, most important job you'll ever have. Yeah. Gotcha, uh, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, work is tough enough. But I see Jason with with his boys while while being a dad while working, and then you with four four kids, and uh, you know, kudos, hats off, uh, amazing, <laughs> and uh, you know, welcome to the prison post, Amanda. Thank you. So let's talk about a little bit of get right into it on restorative justice. Um, so you believe that the justice system has removed the victim from the process, <clears throat> and this does a disservice to the offender and the victim. And, you know, we've had many people on the show. Most of them have been formerly incarcerated, those who are uh, leaders, movers and shakers in the social justice or restorative justice or criminal justice reform movement. And um, we've heard from many people on the side and the perspective from the incarcerated um, but the truth is that restorative justice has two sides and the side of, of the victim and probably um, that side needs to be told more. And we're glad that you're here um, to share a little bit about that. But the restoration of the person or persons harmed is the other side. So why does this side of the conversation sit so hit so close to your heart? Um, that's part of the part of the how we met. And we'll get to that in a little while. But had that side of restorative justice not been important to you, we may not have ever crossed paths. So um, just want to give an open-ended question like that. You know, why does it hit so close to your heart to share the other side of the story uh, for restorative justice? Yeah. So you, you mentioned in the bio that, you know, in, in my life I've had multiple trauma experiences. Um, I am a survivor of sexual assault. Uh, and then also I'm the registered victim of a crime because when I was a teenager, I was living with a family. Um, her, the mom's name was Susan, and she was a very, very close and dear friend of mine. I had known her since I was eight years old. She adopted me as like her little sister and um, just really took me under her wing and loved on me. And um, so so I was living with her and her husband, and she had a, a child from a previous relationship. And then her and her husband had twin sons who were 13 months old. And... Um, that summer when I was with them, I had spent the night at a friend's house and uh, he had planned, it wasn't a spur of the moment thing. It was very planned that he actually murdered her and their twin sons. And um, he had left the other son to die as well. And, and uh, Jonathan survived, thank God. And, uh, you know, obviously we're very, very close. Um, I love him with my whole heart. And um, so having lived through that experience and then having to, I mean, find out about it, go be picked up by the police, um, go be interviewed by the police for hours on end by myself as a teenager, and then go testify at a preliminary hearing, testify at a trial, and then carry on with life. You know, like you're supposed to just 
carry on. Right. So, um, yeah, so that's, I mean, it's, it's significant trauma. So I definitely, I know we're going to use the word victim a lot here and I know some people aren't comfortable with that. Um, I'm personally okay with it. I think it's a very common known word. And in that context, I think that, that it's, it's an adequate representation, right? So when we're talking about the justice system and removing the victim from the process and what our role is and and what our rights and responsibilities are and those kinds of things, those definitely are very important to me because it wasn't even just sort of carry on with life. Like there were a lot of years that, um, you know, you could kind of put it on the back burner. But I mean, at, at any time, you know, something would come up like, you know, when, when life got really hard and she wasn't there or when life got really great and she wasn't there, birthdays, anniversaries, you know, all those kinds of things, right? So it's not like you ever get to forget. It's not like you ever get to really completely move on with life. And especially when someone's lost in such a horrific and tragic way. And they were so instrumental. Like she was my lifeline at that point. You know, she was working through things in her life, you know, from her background that were similar to mine. And she was trying to help give me hope and, and, you know, encourage me to make good choices in my life and just love on me in a way that no one had ever done. You know, like she was a very, very unique person who was very open and honest about her struggles. So she wasn't in a bubble, but she was very real and I could relate to that. And she just opened her heart and her home and her life and was just this open book who, um, you know, really passionately cared about, about Jesus and was just kind of speaking into my life and trying to be the most positive influence that she could be. And then to have that yanked away was really significant, you know? So, you know, it's heart goes out to you. It's hard to really imagine Mm -hmm. uh, the pain that comes at suffering such an incredible loss. My question I have for you, Amanda, is how, how do you not allow yourself to fall into a perspective of bitterness or hatred towards people who commit violent crimes? Yeah. So, I mean, first off you don't, right? Like I, I remember, um, I mean, in the very beginning I didn't understand. We didn't, I didn't think it was him, you know, uh, her family really rallied around him. Like we just, we couldn't imagine, you know, there were a few people that, that knew cause they had seen a few things. And, and I think that I was, I was young and naive and, um, you know, these were just people I loved and trusted and, mm-hmm. Um, and, and didn't, didn't see everything. And so at first, you know, I didn't think it was him. And then pieces started falling into place. Um, he had an image, you know, and I started learning other things that didn't fit with the image. And that was really hard at first because it was like, well, but, but that's, that's not Dean. Like Dean wouldn't do that. The Dean that I know, you know, and it was like, that doesn't fit. And so we, I came to a place where I realized, no, wait a second, he actually did do this. And then there just became more evidence and more evidence. And so I, I did fall into bitterness, especially, I mean, for him, like I hated him. Sure. I remember, you know, at the trial, like standing and watching them bring him in and out of the courtroom. I used to stand at the top of the hill and I used mm. to think if I could kill you, I would, you know, like I just, I thought that like I was in so much pain and I just hated him. And I just, you know, looked at him with as much hate as I could. Um, and to the point, the judge actually made a, a, an announcement in the courtroom and said, please, nobody stand at the top of the hill. And I was like, I'm 16 years old, seriously, <laughs> you know, but um, yeah. And so you kind of, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know that it's possible to not fall into that at that point. Yeah. Um, but then, like you said, like, how do you carry on and, and, and continue with life? And what does that look like? And, you know, and I, I understand like being angry and the whole like criminals should go to jail. And that's what should happen. And, you know, um, separating yourself 
and, and creating those two groups of people who commit crimes, people who don't, and, you know, they deserve punishment, you know, because I did, I hated him and I wanted him punished. You know, he, he took her and the babies away from us. Like, how could you do that? So, um, it's there, but think, you know, I'm thankful that I didn't stay there and that's, that's part how, of you guys too. Right. So how, how, how was it that you weren't there that day? Um, it, it's actually because, um, I wanted to go on a road trip with a boy and, mm. uh, Susan was very protective, which was great. I mean, I need that teenagers need that, but as a teenager, I didn't, I was not happy. And she said, um, you know, uh, you can't go on that road trip. And so we'd had an argument and my next door neighbor said, you know, why don't you come and sleep over here? Um, because you guys are fighting. And so I said, you know, can I go sleep at Shelly's? And Susan said, yes. And so I left and went there and, um, cause we know, you know, from, from the police investigation and everything, like had I been there that night, I would be dead too. You know, he had planned anyone that was in that home that night was, was not going to come out alive. That was his plan. And, uh, so I stayed at, at Shelly's house and, um, I'm, I'm very, very thankful. Like I think, uh, I think it would be a lot harder had this not happened, but we were leaving for the video store and um, Shelly came running out with the phone and said, Susan's on the phone for you. And uh, so I'm in the car and I grabbed the cordless phone and my clothes and she says, Amanda, um, I just, I'm not comfortable with how we left it. And um, when you come home tomorrow, like, can we talk this through? This is really important for me. And I just said, yeah, you know what? The, absolutely. Mm, like I'll, I'll come home special. tomorrow. We'll talk. And so her very last words to me in her entire life were, I love you. Wow. And had we ended on that fight, like, I just, I can't imagine like how that would have left me, you know, like, yeah. So what, what happened in your heart uh, that allowed you the space or the room Mm -hmm. to consider like getting in the fight for restorative justice, which I know we'll talk more in detail about later on. Mm -hmm. Um, What was it for you that kind of that, that spark, like, you know what, this is a conversation I need to be a part of. Right. I think um, there was a lot that I learned. There was a lot of growing. There was a lot of healing. I'm still healing. I I don't believe that, you know, this side of heaven, I'm going to be fully healed. That's that's not a thing. There's things that continue to reopen the wounds. And I mean, we I attend every parole hearing, you know, I, I get information, uh, you know, on, on what's happening and, you know, our system is a little bit different up there than it is here. And there's advantages and disadvantages to the, to the two different justice systems between America and and Canada. Um, and I think that, uh, and honestly, part of it too is, is knowing who Susan was and how forgiving and loving that she was and what would she have wanted this to look like? And, you know, that, that kind of a thing, I think that was helpful for me to sort of reconnect with, with who she was, the influence in her life and know that she wouldn't have wanted me to stay bitter forever. You know that because you carry that, right? Like whenever you don't forgive someone, like no matter what or how deep the pain is, you're the one in prison. It wasn't hurting him. You know, it was hurting me being that angry and, um, but there's a lot of things to work through. Like I, I was afraid, you know, like I, I had lots of trust issues, right? Because I trusted him. And then to know that he wasn't who I thought he was, how do I trust anybody is who, they really right. are right. <laughs> like that was, that was hard. So, um, so it, it definitely impacts you in so many different ways. Yeah. And so having to work through all of those and, and come to a place to realize that, you know, the things that you're carrying are not serving you, they're actually harming you. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, it's an investment in yourself to, as, to work through those things. As, um, coaches in our ready for life program, we, um, walk our participants or associates through this chart that we call the bitterness cycle. 
and we say that after bitterness comes resentment and that sometimes we use the quote that resentment is like drinking poison and expect uh, expecting the other person to die but in fact they're not dying we're the only ones dying yeah sure and so part of the healing um and letting go or finding a way to um, to heal from the resentment or the bitterness is it's really for more for us than, than for them. Um, I'm curious about was any type of healing or therapy provided for you afterwards? In other words, how did you go from where you were at 16 um, and wanting him dead to the perspective you have today? And what is your perspective today? All right. So, um, I mean, at that time, which, I mean, looking back, I grieve for that little girl because I didn't, I didn't have anything, you know, like I didn't, I didn't see a counselor and I mean, I sure needed one, you know, like I am, I'm a, a strong advocate for counseling now, you know, like I think it's very helpful. I don't, I don't think all counselors are the same, but, um, you find the right one that, you know, can work with you and, and what you need in that kind of a thing. Um, so it was later in life that I did get some, some actual counseling proper things, but yeah, I mean, I made a, a ton of mistakes that I don't know, maybe they could have been different had I had help earlier on, mm-hmm. but I didn't. Right. So this is my life story and this is where I am. And I'm, I'm thankful that I did get some help, right. To, to work through all those things. And, and, and it wasn't even just that piece, right. Like I say, there's lots of other things that happened along the way, things that happened to me that I had no control over that I still had to deal with the repercussions of, and then decisions that I made that were poor, you know, acting out of those hurts and acting out of that mistrust and all those kinds of things. So it all kind of culminated into a place where I remember thinking, um, you know, I, I don't want to live like this anymore. And I called like a, like a helpline and they said, well, are you suicidal? And I said, no, that's the problem. I don't want to die. I actually want to live, mm-hmm. but I don't want to live like this. And they said, well, sure. we can't help you. Cause I wasn't suicidal. And so they're yeah. like, well, if you're not suicidal, I can't, I can't do anything. Sure. So, um, but I, I, I persisted, you know, and I just started like reading as much as I could in different ways and places and connecting with people, trying mm-hmm. different groups. Like I just, I wasn't going to give up in, in life. You know what I mean? And I was going to find a way to, to figure life out. You know, I mean, I'm still, still working on that, but yeah, right. join the club. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> haven't arrived. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, so you, you were speaking a little bit about the, the differences between the criminal justice system in the States and in Canada. Would you be willing to elaborate a little bit more about some of the key differences? Yeah. I mean, certainly, uh, especially in my relationships, um, that I've developed with, you know, crop and, and some of your guys is even just, just friends and, and connections and watching you guys go through, um, like the parole process and, you know, hearing that someone was denied for 15 years, mm-hmm. you know, like, it's like, what, <laughs> you know, like yeah. that's, that's a thing. Right. Um, and, and so, and I, and I watch, you know, you guys talk about some of the other people that, and I, I was just listening to the, the, the James um, podcast, which was a great one. And he talked about, you know, there are transformed people on the inside mm-hmm. still. Right. And we're advocating for them to come out and waiting for them. Um, and so I see that hindrance for people that actually could come out and be contributing members of society and, and changing lives out here. And they're stuck in there, which is costing taxpayers and is sure. not benefiting society. Right. So the flip side to that is in Canada, um, you know, there's different types of parole that you can apply for. You have escorted temporary absences, unescorted temporary absences, day parole and full parole. So it's almost like a graduation system in a lot of ways. And regardless of the crime, regardless of the crime. Yeah. And, and depending on the crime, you may have a guaranteed release date, 
because of Dean's crime, you know, he received um, three uh, life, well, four life sentences, one for attempted murder for Jonathan and then three for actual, you know, first degree murder for Susan and David and Josiah. And um, so for him, he doesn't have a guaranteed release date, but yet the Canadian system is in such a way that, you know, we knew there's coming a day he will sure. get out. It, sure. it, it's coming. Do, do they have um, life without the possibility of parole in Canada? Uh, no, no. It, there, that just doesn't exist. What about death penalty? Nope. We haven't had the death penalty in a long time. And I wrestled with that too for a long time because I did hate Dean. And it, it would have made my life a lot simpler had we had the death penalty and just take him out. Um, and I and so I thought about that for a very long time. And I, I thought about how many people are in the system that are innocent mm-hmm. and, and we take their lives. Um, you know, and 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 I, I actually came to a place where I don't believe in the death penalty. I sure. would love to see the death penalty abolished in every single country. I don't believe in it. And and I believe that, that Dean is still a danger to society. Mm-hmm. And so I do believe he should still be incarcerated because he is not rehabilitated yet. Um, but so I don't, I don't, I, I'm happily paying tax dollars that will pay to keep him there and keep him alive mm-hmm. and, and treat him like a human being because he's not lost his human rights. Like no matter what you do, you don't lose your human rights. You're human. Right. So, but we do have to also balance that with the safety of society you know, and, and so finding that balance can be tricky, right? But sure. and, so, and, and maybe even beyond the question of innocence for when it comes to the death penalty, I think that, in, at least in my perspective, when we say that, you know, it's this person's no longer any good, we're, we are ourselves not acknowledging their possibility to transform. Absolutely. Right. And how yeah. many people who, you know, never commit horrendous crimes make poor choices. And then make new decisions mm-hmm. and have, because we have that capacity as humans to make new decisions and, and go again and, and do better. So yeah. um, I appreciate that perspective. Maybe the transformational conversation is a little bit harder for people to, mm-hmm. to digest depending on the crimes that people commit because we, it's just in us. Like when, when someone does something that hurt us, we, we kind of want to see them hurt. Mm-hmm. But, but in, in doing that, I think we kind of serve kind of a lesser sense than this possibility of what we can do when we give people the opportunity to transform themselves and to step into that. Yeah. I want to say, say, you know, you, you volunteer with us. Sometimes you're on zooms with guys and now gal with our, um, a new executive director that <clears throat> have served over a hundred years in the California prison system. And you're laughing, you're smiling, you're loving. I mean, you've been to my home soon visit Jason. You've been to some of uh, the crop members teams homes. And, and, um, so what's the difference with, what your perspective of our rehabilitation or transformation and his. Well, I think, um, I mean, I, I came to know crop because, uh, I was doing a restorative justice certificate and, um, one of my, my classmates, you know, was doing work with the exercise and empathy program. And, um, and that's how I came to know crop. And then I stalked you on Facebook and uh, <laughs> stalked all of you. on Facebook. <laughs> right. And uh, yeah. And then, I, but I, I mean, you are amazing because I mean, I would fire 10,000 questions at you and you would answer every single one. You would take hours on the phone with me to help me understand, you know, what it was like to be incarcerated. You told me your story, you know, about where you came from and, and how, you know, everything happened, how that unfolded, how you've transformed. And then, yeah, I'm, I'm listening to all of the different podcasts and, and everything and getting to know your stories, which, you know, over the last while has, has, you know, impacted me so, 
significantly. I was, it's almost like, you know, I was kind of already on this track, but then it was just, you know, you see those jumps in the market. This was a jump in the market to get connected to you guys and be like, this stuff's really real. You know, you read about it in books or, you know, I've heard stories of other people um, going through restorative justice processes and different things. And you hear the theoretical, but to actually see people and, and restorative justice is a very, very broad brush. You know, there's a lot of different ways that it can be done. There's, there's not one specific route. So I just want to say that, you know, when we talk about that, it's, it's very large. And so typically you kind of see like a, a, a process where you have uh, the person who's committed the crime or caused the harm and connecting with the person who was the victim. And, you know, they work through a, a process together. And I mean, that can be very risky, very challenging. But in in my particular situation, I am going through a restorative justice process. We've initiated where we've asked him, you know, we're going to ask him to, for a meeting to see if he'll sit down with me. And because of, you know, like floods and craziness that's going on, um, they haven't been able to initiate that process yet. But um, I also have been at parole hearings and my victim statement that I read, uh, you know, I said that I believe that he still needs to be incarcerated because there's not a change in behavior. And that was, and even Jay and I, he spent a lot of time with me because now we're going to board again. And this is the thing about the Canadian system, right? It's been a year. He can go to board again. There's no like, oh, 15, five years. Every year. It can be every year. Wow. Yeah. Um, even for the escorted temporary absences, it can be, you know, there's different ones. So, I mean, you, in theory, in theory, you could be going to board a lot in right. Canada, but, um, you know, Jay spent a lot of time with me because I said like, tell me how you know, right? Like, how do you know someone has changed? Because I, I look at you guys and I live with you guys, you know, like we do life together and even, you know, countries apart. And it's like, yeah, what you guys talk about is real life. You know, like you're living it. You don't just come on stage and talk about it. This is who you really are. But we know that people are good at putting on a show and that's Dean was so good at putting on a show. And so I thought, what if, you know, he is changed or not. Like, how do we know? And so, you know, we, I appreciate that time he spent with me talking that through, right? Because that's significant. And part of restorative justice is the person that caused the harm taking responsibility. Yes. And from from what I come to understand, um, he hasn't done that yet. That's exactly the thing. Like when we went to the very first board hearing um, in January, because of what you guys have taught me and shown me, like, I got to see him minimizing, making excuses, you know, like all of that behavior that is really the opposite of taking responsibility, right? I mean, first of all, he denies that he did the crime, you know, um, and when you hear his story on that, um, I see how people believe him. I mean, he's very charismatic. He's very charming. Um, and you know, and that's one of our pieces is that as the family, there's things that, that we know that, that he doesn't present, you know, he doesn't talk about when he threw her against the wall, you know, he doesn't talk about, you know, breaking Jonathan's collarbone, you know, but Jonathan remembers, you know, and so there's a lot of things that weren't presented at trial because they weren't necessarily, you know, imperative to the conviction, but they're things that we know. And so we know that, that he did commit this crime, but he still, you know, he says that he didn't do it and he still tries to present this persona. But what came out at board too, which was really helpful for me was um, hearing his background and and how he grew up. Because in Canada, at least at board, anything is fair game. And so he had a family member come and and read a statement as well about some really? things. Yeah. Everything's fair game. So, yeah. so, so an offenders or, you know, someone who committed a crime, their family member can actually attend a board hearing. Absolutely. Yep. Wow. And, and, and that's and not his, allowed in California. 
Yeah, I know you can here. <laughs> you can. So he, he had a family member that came and talked about things that occurred, but he was advocating for him to stay in jail. He wasn't advocating for him to come out. Right. So as I say, like there's a lot of differences. There's a lot of things that are good and bad, but yeah, when you read a victim impact statement at court, at trial, um, you are only allowed to sort of be very specific to that crime and, and anything pertinent to that. But when you go to board and they're looking at releasing you into the mm-hmm. community, they want all of it. So they asked him questions like, hey, this family member brought this up from when you were young. Let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. And he just was like, well, I mean, it, we were young and, and sure. I don't, you know, and, and it so you could just see that pattern of, of minimization and, and not owning anything and anything that didn't fit his persona of a godly Christian man who loves his family, who lost them in this horrific incident, you know, he just really, you know, brushed off and, and it just wasn't a part. Well, it seems apparent that in Canada, they have a much more um, diplomatic process to hopefully reintegrating people back into the community. What about inside of prisons? Are you familiar with some of the programs that are offered? Is there an abundance? Is there a shortage? Yeah, they, I've been in touch with corrections um, because I mean, I, I love, you know, what you guys do and, and obviously what you, you guys have developed and gone through is literally changing lives, right? It, it changed yours. It's changing, you know, other people's. And so I've been working with Canadian corrections in terms of trying to see what opportunities there are. There are programs in Canadian prisons, but I don't believe that there are enough um, I think that we we have a lot of work to do mm. in that area. And there's still a lot of transformation that needs to happen in our justice systems really around the world. Like we still have a ton of issues. And like I say, there's there's good and bad on, on both sides. There's advantages and disadvantages. I mean, one of the disadvantages to going aboard so often is that, I mean, it puts my life in hell, you know, sure. I mean? like having to write those statements over and over and, you know, everything, all that pain is comes back repeatedly and I will not miss a, a, a parole hearing. Like I will not, right. I will show up and represent them. And, and the one he's asking right now is to, to go out, um, to go do a program. And so the victim statement that I, that I just wrote actually, you know, sort of talked about that whole piece about how I don't see the transformation and how we're lacking programs in prison in that, you know, I information I don't have is specifically what program he wants to go to. They, they do maintain privacy for him, right? They have to balance that. So there's certain things I'm allowed to know, certain things I'm not allowed to know. I'm not allowed to know what program he's applying for. And mm. so what I said is I don't see transformation and board. Like I need you to understand this and that, you know, he's really slick, um, you know, at this kind of stuff. But if you believe that this program is something he could benefit from, I trust your decision. And that's literally how I leave my statement, which I have to read in a few weeks here mm-hmm. is that I trust your decision. I was, I will say, I mean, I've only been to board once and I was so impressed with the board and, and their ability to see through things. I do think they were also fair and, and compassionate because he's a human being, but you know, they called him on his crap. Sure. Yeah. Know? And I appreciated that. I want to say that, you know, a lot of people in the California prison system, um, Jason and I have heard it about the board. A lot of times they'll speak of them as, you know, you know, just a bunch of former cops and judges that are trying to keep us all here in prison. But someone who's been to the board and known probably a thousand of my friends that have gone to board, those that are living a responsible life and living um, out their transformation as a true expression of who they are today. Most of them would say the board, the board that they, their perspective of the board changed after they left there or when they were in there, that they begin to see them as stewards of the community. And, 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 you know, that varies. Some are tougher than others for, for their own reasons, but 
Um, that was my experience as well. And we also want to be stewards of our own community as well. Mm-hmm. And um, we could we can tell when somebody's like, well, you know, you know, it's not flattering to admit. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking about what you're sharing about this crime. And I know I've heard it before, but my mind, it's like something on Dateline or 2020. And and to to hear that I was living here yesterday and then I come back. I stay the night at someone's house and three people are murdered that I love and another one's nearly murdered and it's incomprehensible and, you know, for a court to convict and then the person to not take responsibility. Yeah, we, we've come across people like people who are the same way in prison who they don't want to do it because it's not flattering or, or it's like, I said I was innocent in the beginning. Now I have to change my story. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you may be denied after changing your story, but what's the truth? And and are you willing to face it? And the truth is is looking in the mirror. That's the leadership work that we do is looking in the mirror. You want to look in the mirror and say the unflattering things. You won't have to do it every day of your life, and you won't have to do it. Uh, no, everybody has something, right? And nobody's expected to, you know, walk around owning their stuff every day of their life. But um, you certainly will have to do it um, to to get out and to be free and. There is freedom in it internally and personally. I say often that I had to get free on the inside before I could ever be free on the outside, mm-hmm. right? So the, there's one thing before we move on to the next point. You said I be, you believe that the justice system has removed the victim from the process. Mm-hmm. Um, could you speak a, you know, quickly to that and a little bit about how um, the system was and what it's like today? Yeah. So historically, actually, what used to happen is in a court, the victim used to have to present their case. They had to build it. They had to collect evidence. They had to bring it to court. So they had certain rights and responsibilities and the accused would come and have their rights and responsibilities. And so there's almost this this balance. Both had rights in, in the courts. And the, the downfall of that type of a setup is that you've got victims who've been traumatized Mm-hmm. who are trying to build cases, which is crazy, mm-hmm. you know, don't know proper collection method. You know what I mean? Like it just, I mean, that was really unrealistic. Right. And and I get that. But so then what happened is, is the, the balance of power transferred to the crown. And so then it wasn't a crime anymore by the accused against the victim. It was then a crime against That's society true. and against the, you know, against the crown. And so, um, it removed the victim. And at that point, then the victims just become a witness to the crime, mm-hmm. you know, and you do what Crown tells you to do, right? I mean, I had to show up when Crown said, okay, we've got a court date. You've got to be here. You know, you've got to sit in that hotel for three days and wait because we don't know when you're, we're calling you to the stand. So, you know, but but that's what you do. Okay, that's now. very similar in the U.S., right? When yeah. Subpoenaed, 100%. When subpoenaed to yeah. speak to. Yeah, you're, you're a witness. But the reality is I'm not just a witness to the crime. Like I lived that crime, right? Like that's, that's very different than being a witness. There are people that see a crime and then there's people that live the crime, right. but you're treated in the system as a witness and that that's your usefulness. But the reality is for, for victims is that we need to find meaning in what happened. And we're, when we're removed from that process, that's really hard to do. We don't have a voice anymore. We don't matter. Uh, mm-hmm. except for our usefulness to the crown. And that's not okay. And that's damaging to us. We become almost like it's, it's like a secondary victimization by the system because we're removed and, and we're not given any opportunity. We don't have any rights anymore. And that's why there are movements. The United Nations uh, created a, 
you know, rights for victims and, and certain countries have adopted that in, in different ways. Um, and so there is a movement towards giving victims rights again and allowing them to be a part of the process in a variety of different ways. And the data shows that victims don't want to make the decisions. You know, we don't right. want to be the one to say, yeah, charge that guy or don't charge that guy, but we want to be involved in the process. And some of the data that I've been reading is even in domestic violence cases, um, you know, which they, they took that, um, decision-making process away from women, which I understand because, you know, we'll often go back to the, the person who hurt us or things like that and be like, don't charge him, don't charge him. And they end up dead, right? Or those kinds of things. So that's not their decision-making at all. But they even found though that in the cases where they involved the women in the process, they didn't get to make the decisions anymore, but at least when they were involved in the process, the, the, the re-victimization rates went down. You know, so it's, it's significant when victims are allowed to be involved and be a part. So it, so it matters. Give me one example of being involved in the process. Okay. So, I mean, I, <laughs> I'm a, I know it'll come as a shock, but I have a very strong personality. <laughs> so I have no problem advocating for myself. And so, um, because, because we're in the process of victims' rights, we're not there yet. It's, it's not where it should be. But so being informed. Um, so I know the names and phone numbers of all the people that are involved in the various stages right now with parole. And there's some, some legal stuff that's still going on in the courts, you know, as in the Supreme court a couple of years back with, with Dean's case and um, DNA evidence and different things. So it's a very long process, but I know, you know, names, phone numbers, emails, you know, and I'm going, what's going on, what's happening. Being informed is a, is a significant part of being in the process, right? And being told what is happening and then being able to give feedback and say, oh, I appreciate that you're doing this. And what about that? And I've given them information and I said, yeah, this is coming around the corner at you just so you know, cause I know it's coming, you know, and, and that's helpful to them as well. Right. right? So there are various ways. And of course, victim impact statements where you're reading at sentencing, um, being a part of parole, being able to come in. That's also another way because restorative justice isn't just at one space. You know, it can be pre-incarceration. It can be during incarceration. It can be post-incarceration. So again, it's a very, very broad spectrum. But even right from the get-go, having victims involved and knowing what's happening and being kept up to date and being able to to have a, a piece, like I say, in domestic violence cases, you know, like being able to give that input in terms of what's happening here. And and it, it gives us back some power. Sure. You know, that's been taken from us. And, and again, that's a huge piece of healing, right? I think that, you know, whether we're talking about the crown, I've never really heard that before. The, <laughs> the crown? <laughs> yeah. So what do we say crown. here? Well, yeah, because the, the government. Yeah, because we're, yeah. we're British, right? Yeah. Canadians. Yeah. So, yeah, it's the crown. But, but I mean, whether we're talking about the crown or the government in the United States, like the restorative part, you would think that ideally their primary purpose and obligation would be to restore society to a place of peace. And like when I think about restorative justice, obviously it involves the victims, like people who were harmed and also the community itself. How do we restore it in a responsible way? Mm -hmm. But it's important, I think, that we parse out the distinction between restoration and transformation because transformation is for the pe person who made the poor choice and committed the crime, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And as Rich was saying earlier, like you can't have transformation unless a person is willing to get accountable. You got to get accountable, look in the mirror, say, this is who I was. This is, this is how I was thinking that made it seem okay to behave in this way. Mm -hmm. Right. And then make the choice to go again and do something new. Mm -hmm. My question for you, Amanda, is this, when it comes to the restorative side, do you believe that Canada in general has a perspective that they have a shared responsibility in the person's, not only their transformation, but in them coming to a place in the community where they thought that that was a good choice? Um, 
Okay, say the last part of that again. Okay, so I'm gonna make sure I don't miss it. Okay, well, let me give you an example. So, you know, one model that we appreciate is the way they do prison in Germany. Mm. And in Germany, they have an abundance of programming. They have you know a lot of support for the incarcerated population. And the perspective that they hold is that society itself has a small part, but a part in the person making the decision to commit the crime. Mm-hmm. That they established a context mm-hmm. that made that seem okay, whether it was the type of media that was presented, the type of living conditions that they were in. And therefore, because they have that mentality of a shared responsibility, then they say it is their job to rehabilitate, reeducate, and reintegrate as quickly as possible. Right. Do you agree with that They're perspective? They're citizens. They're citizens. Yeah. Do you agree with that perspective? And do you see that being practiced in Canada? I 100% agree with that perspective, right? Because it is the community that's harmed. Yes, Dean took Susan and the babies from us. But I mean, that whole community, it was a small town, you know, where that happened. And the whole community hurt. You know, they were terrified, right? Like it impacted that whole community. So there, you know, crime isn't just about the individual people. So I definitely agree that, that the community pr- approach is significant. And it's why I think we do need to, to change justice because when you look at um, indigenous cultures and the way that they, you know, have done things like circles and, and brought communities in, even, even if you go back to Celtic Brehan law in Ireland, Right. It was a community that came. There wasn't incarceration. There wasn't a focus on punishment. Um, it was really about, okay, we've had harm happen in the community and how do we heal as a community? Right. And there's different ways to kind of go about that. And in Canada, I think that there's a movement. There's definitely been a lot of significant progress there, but I would never weigh that. Like, cause I mean, I, the more I investigate things that are happening in the U.S. as well, Mm -hmm. the more excited and the more encouraged I am because there's more and more opportunities, you know, more and more people that are understanding. And, and I think that's the biggest thing is people often misunderstand what restorative justice is. Mm -hmm. And that's really a detriment because then they're fighting against something that actually could, could benefit them and benefit society. Right. So sometimes people think it's just, you know, getting, they the person who committed the crime, you know, getting off easy. But when you talk to people who've been part of a process, I mean, some, some of them refuse it, right. For various reasons. And the ones that have gone through with it have said like, it was way harder facing the people that I hurt than, than sitting in any cell, sure. you know, like it, that's oh, yeah. not an easy thing to do for sure. And, and to be accountable and, and to take that. Right. And it does it. it I mean, it, it changes you, right. Like it can't not change you. So, um, I think there are movements. I think we need to to bolster those movements. It's what I want to do. It's mm. it's the direction that I want with my life because I believe that we will have stronger communities. We will have more healed families um, by going through this process. That's and, awesome. Yeah, less incarceration. I, I, <laughs> you know, I, I was in boards for seven and a half hours. I have to say that it was the it was tougher than twenty years of prison. I don't mean like as a cumulative, but. There wasn't one day in prison that was tougher than that mm-hmm. day. And it was probably the best day that I ever experienced, even though it was the hardest, because I got an opportunity to make amends. I had opportunity to have a conversation, even though they don't allow you to look at the, the person that we harmed in California. We don't um, either. They're not allowed either yeah, in Canada. Yeah. But um, uh, you're certainly, you know, I'm only a few feet more away than Jason. And, to hear, like Jason said, what choices were you making? What was your thinking that led up to allowing you to become the person that you thought it was okay to commit a crime like this? If you can't speak to that, 
most likely you're not going to get out. Mm-hmm. And what you're talking about right now, and I would say this to my brothers and sisters who are incarcerated right now watching the prison post, uh, no matter what state you're in, is that one of the things that's important is what Amanda talked about, the community that was affected and Jason talked about as well. How did you, how did what you did and what you caused affect the community? How did it affect uh, the family members? How did it affect the immediate family members, the distant family members? How did it affect uh, the sheriff's department, the ambulance, the, 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 the district attorney? How did it affect the court process? How did it affect um, um, the family that survived financially, mentally, emotionally, years and years to come? And I think that there's nobody ever can commit crime when they're uh, empathizing with another person, you have to cut off empathy to be able to harm somebody or else you wouldn't be able to do it. So my invitation is to tap back into empathy and put yourself in the position of, of those in the community, the immediate family, everybody that was involved in harm in some way, put yourself in their position and tap into that. And, and when you can do that, then, and it's not easy to do because we don't want to do it, especially in prison. Prison is not a place that's conducive to empathizing or vulnerability. Yeah. And it's not vulnerable. And then you have a celly, uh, you know, you probably have somebody as a cellmate or a celly in the cell. And, um, but, but it's necessary to heal. And, uh, we need, we need that restoration process. And it's rare in California, like the couple of the best events that I ever went to, um, not events, but, um, programs that were provided, not necessarily, not by the state or not by the prison itself saying, Hey, we need this program here. But by the incarcerated reaching out to these, um, it was five mothers, mothers of murdered children, who they came in and talked about the impact uh, of the loss of their sons, the death of their sons, and the murder on them. Many of them went to divorce. Some of them are still out there on their own searching for the, the, the person who did it. And just they're devastated in pain and talk about how it affected them financially, emotionally, physically. Um, spiritually and how they feel about God and, and all these things. And I, I didn't see a dry eye on the house and we had many programs on the inside, but that one was, was really, really a tough and eye opening. And it allowed us in the room to tap back into empathy uh, ourselves, which, which at some point we're cutting off to be able to commit crimes like, like this murder and, uh, you know, robbery and whatever it is. Um, so obviously Amanda, then you don't, you, I, I would assume that you don't think punishment um, makes societies safer. Um, at Crop, one of our models is we're want to say it, Jay. <laughs> Invest, <laughs> investing in, in people, people over punishment. Yeah, investing in people over punishment. Mm-hmm. And in the California Handbook, I believe it says that the purpose of prison is to punish. Punish. Mm-hmm. So that's, it, that's a, the penal code. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so long as. Um, oh, 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 I would just say briefly, I've, I've said a lot right here, but um, so long as we continue to, I, I, I get it. You know, we, we've said it ourselves. Somebody harms one of Jason's sons, you know, I want to, I want to punish you. You know, you, you, you that's, you're not going to want to hurt one of my family members. So I get it. But 95% of people are going to get out. Right. And you keep a per keep punishing a person for 20 plus years. What type of neighbor what type of neighbor are you going to get back? Mm-hmm. And at some point we got to shift the narrative there. Uh, Jay, you have anything to share on that? And then I want yeah, to love your thoughts. I just want to say it's definitely both and, right? So society, whether it's the crown or the government. <laughs> <laughs> or the process. Right, right. Have a responsibility, right, to keep people safe. Yeah. When people make poor choices, 
they need to be separated from society for a period of time. But when they're separated, what investment is society making in them to create a space for them to choose something different? Mm-hmm. Because if you treat someone like an animal, you can expect that those are the types of behaviors you're going to receive in return, yeah. right? But none of that makes any sense or, or won't yield any results if the individuals themselves don't make the decision to transform their lives. Mm-hmm. Don't turn away. Like with true contrition, the definition of contrition is to turn away from a behavior. Like when you mm-hmm. allow yourself to be vulnerable, to be open, to be empathetic for the pain you caused – then you can make the choice to turn away from that behavior. And I think that's the difference that you were alluding to earlier between us and some people like, um, like Dean mm-hmm. is we've, we've become contrite. Like we get the pain we caused and we've made the choice to turn away from that behavior completely. Mm-hmm. That's transformation. So it's both and. Yeah. It's both and. But people don't have the space to transform if they're treated like animals by society. Yeah. So yeah. those are some of my thoughts. What's next for you? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> yeah, I, real quick, I was thinking about somebody who yeah. one time got upset when uh, someone in prison was killed a spider. It's like, what are you doing? Like, whereas before, a lot of people think like that's oh, just a spider, mm. but his perspective was so bent on not causing harm, like he didn't even want a bug in his cell <laughs> to be harmed. As uh, it's a good thing, but yeah, like Jay that's, said, what that's kind doing? of extreme. I've got <laughs> <laughs> Jay's killing spiders. I've got <laughs> bottles of raid in my garage. <laughs> They're going down. Uh, you still need some transformation. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, uh, to Jason's question, Amanda, and and include with that, like, how did you uh, come across Crop, and uh, how did we meet? And from your perspective, I, I we shared a little, you shared a bit of it yeah. uh, in class, but. But, but there's been some, some significant things for me because, um, I mean, it's true, like in, in my situation, you know, Dean doesn't take responsibility. Um, but my, you know, relationships with you guys and watching you guys take responsibility. And that's one of the things, you know, there are restorative justice programs where, you know, you, if you're a victim and you're like, well, but my person doesn't take responsibility, so I can't do restorative justice. That's actually not true. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would prevent you from levels of healing. Right. And, and that, that can't be. So, um, it's like you guys have been a proxy for me, you know, to see and to not, and to stay out of that bitterness of hatred and anger, you know, and, and that kind of a thing, because I can see that, that there is hope that people can be transformed who have caused great harm. It is possible. So my work with crop has been so important to me because it gives me hope. It, it is keeping me going, which I think, you know, makes me super excited and a little, you know, overboard sometimes, (laughs) but, but that's why though, right? Like that's my hope, you know, this is the future. This is, this is everything that is going to change lives because it's changed my life. You know, it's, it's given me, um, a deeper sense of healing to know that, that, that people can commit harm and, and can take responsibility. It's possible for anybody. It's absolutely possible. I remember you said one time that you love our community Mm -hmm. and, and I thought, okay, she's all the way in Canada and, and she's participating <laughs> with us on Zooms and, and, and helping with our newsletters. And, and she said she loves our community. And I thought, um, that's one of our goals, you know, is to uh, create a, a new community, you know, transforming lives and healing communities. And uh, I, never, I never really thought that we would c- come across someone like you who from another country and with, with your horrific trans- uh, traumatic experiences that – part of the healing that we're trying to give to our formerly incarcerated brothers and sisters um, would also impact you in the way that it has. So I think that's really special. 
and um, I'm glad you're on the show with us today. Uh, uh, that's just hitting me right now. <laughs> um, I had a friend in prison. Jason knew him too. He was on our football team, Shabazz. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember his his whole real name. I don't but, either. Uh, I, know, um, I know he was big and strong. And- big, strong, <laughs> big, dark black beard, uh, pretty strong, uh, tough guy um, as far as uh, big linebacker mode. Mm-hmm. But Shabazz had um, um, was a gang member earlier in life, and he murdered a, a woman's son. And she she wanted to meet him, and she set up a meeting. She's a Christian woman, and restorative justice isn't just for Christians. But I, you know that that story, um, I always remember it because I saw her in the visiting room with him. And not only did she come to meet him, and she heard his side of the story, and Shabazz's contrite. And um, she heard his side of the story, and then she decided to take him on as like her her own son. You know, you're going to replace my son in in some way. And she visited him, and she you know sent him Christmas and cards. And I don't think Shabazz had too many uh, family members left in his life, but I saw her out there with, with him one day, and it's just overwhelming, emotional. It doesn't. It's incomprehensible, but it's possible. It's possible to get to that place. And what a better place and more empowering place for the victim of of a crime to get there rather than just to let that eat at them every day of their lives until they die. Um, anyways, I just thought of that right now. I just want to share it. We got yeah. a couple more minutes left. Well, and I, and I will add on that too. Something that is really important that I think gets <clears throat> forgotten is that, um, you know, when crimes happen, um, there's a lot of questions. Why did it happen? Um, you know, and even, even family members of the crime, like you said, that mom, she might've had questions about, you know, the incident itself. And when you have the opportunity to sit down with the person who committed that crime, you know, even getting a lot of those answers, um, is very healing as well, because those linger, those, those roll in your head, you know, all the time and, and they'll do that until you get the answers that, that you can get. So that is a part of that process as well. And that is healing, to, to know and understand. And, um, I mean, I remember um, hearing the story out of the UK of a woman who was raped and she was attacked by someone she didn't know. Um, and she initiated the restorative justice process and sat down with her rapist and was able to piece together, you know, like, like, why did you target me? Why did you do this? And she got those answers and that was so healing for her. And I mean, it's hard for people to kind of conceptualize that. Like you're going to sit down with your rapist, you know, or like, I want to sit down with the man who murdered my family. You know, this man that I knew that I trusted, that I loved. Um, yeah, I do. It's harder. It's way harder, but it's way better than just walking around with these unanswered questions with this pain, you know, like this is, I, I really believe it's, it's the right way to do it. And if, if you can't meet them directly, you know, then, then there are programs that have proxies, you know, and that kind of a yeah. thing. And like I say, like just connecting with you guys, it is, you are my community. You know, you guys are my family at this point, you know, like. We appreciate you. We appreciate your advocacy. Mm-hmm. We appreciate your willingness to practice forgiveness, mm-hmm. uh, your willingness to believe in the best in people mm-hmm. um, and to be in this fight with us. Uh, it's, it's truly an honor. Well, I, and I do want to say too, like being fully transparent, you know, as I've gotten to know each of you and, and one of the things for my birthday this year, one of our, our mutual friends, I said, for my birthday present, I want you to tell me your story, Mm. you know, like I want you to sit down with me. And he told me and, and he explained to me the trauma that led up to the crime that he committed 
and he explained to me the crime that he committed. It was hard. Like it was really hard. And I remember one of our exercises in empathy in the prison, um, one of the, the, um, incarcerated people had shared, you know, I, I killed my best friend. And then that was the episode where I was able to sort of share, you know, a little bit of my story. And, and then we went back to asking the people who were incarcerated, like, you know, what are your thoughts or your feelings? And he just blurted out. He said, I killed my girlfriend. And I remember just going, you know, and being like, don't gasp audibly, don't gasp audibly, you know, like, and so it's not easy. Like I don't, I mean, my relationship with you are strong and I love you guys, but yeah, there are moments even in relationships with you guys where I'd go, Ooh, okay. That's tough. Sure. You know, like, so it, it is hard, you know, because you, you have that pain and you go, Oh, that person that you killed, like their family. I know what that pain is. I know what it's like to see your family members pictures on the TV, you know, like that was so surreal. It's like, that's, that's them. You know, you watch the news and there's pictures and there's pictures, but it's like, wait a second, but that's, that's my family. We were at the beach. Those are pictures from the beach that, that we took, you know what I mean? So it, it is, it is hard, but it's worth it. It's way worth it. That's right. Yeah. Well, we have a, uh, any last words, Jason? No, go ahead. Okay. So, um, I just want to give you like maybe, uh, 30 seconds. If there's, um, uh, a healing message for, for those out there who may be watching, you know, our audiences, you know, family members and loved ones and incarcerated. Um, I'm sure, I mean, we have a wide audience now, but if there's a message for those who have been victimized, I think everybody's been victimized on a daily basis or in one way or another, but on different levels and uh, to get the healing that you have or, and um, what would that message be? And if you could just. Yeah, I think um my message would really be, I mean, first of all, about education, about restorative justice. Um, you know, if you're listening, like, I don't know what your level of understanding of it is. So I would definitely encourage you to look more into it and see what the options are. Um, I mean, the data is there to show that, that it works, you know, um, there are certain parameters it, you know, it can't be done willy nilly. Like that's very important. This is very serious, right? You're dealing Mm -hmm. with great levels of pain. You're dealing with people who've committed crimes. And like you say, you know, to walk through a process with someone who isn't transformed or, but there can be transformation, right? So, so it's really important. So the education piece in terms of what is restorative justice, what that looks like. And if you have been a victim of a crime, you know, what could that look like for you, you know, depending at where you're at in the process and, and supporting people who choose it because, you know, we hear stories about people um, that, that decide to be a part of the process and then they're belittled or they're told like, why would you ever do that? You right. know, because obviously those people don't understand. So, you know, as a victim though, it, it is important. And so supporting those people that, that do make that decision, you know, that I'm going to go. Cause I know like I, um, I know it's going to be hard for me, you know, as people are like, what do you mean you're going to go sit down with Dean? Yeah. If he says yes, yes, I'm actually going to do that's, that. So that's great. Yeah. So look for those opportunities and, and do that. All right. Yeah. Well, it's been great having you on the prison post. Uh, we look forward to spending a few time, uh, some time with you after the show, and uh, definitely um, uh, we have to have you on another time to share some more. The future of our work is going to be great this new year. Um, we got some exciting shows for you coming up uh, in 2022. Um, and uh, let's see what else is left. Uh, look us up on uh, croporganization.org. Um, you can find our link tree there. It'll take you to all of our socials and to um, our YouTube channel, the prison post, our crop organization. And um, so I'm excited about our work for the new year. Some amazing things going on. Stay tuned. We're going to be updating our website, giving some um, press releases here in the next couple of months uh, of some great work that we're going to about to, that we're about to um, embark on in this new year. It's uh, probably going to be our best year. So stay tuned. Thank you for, thank you for listening. 
Thank you for listening to The Prison Post, a production of the Crop Organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice, so please join us. You can listen to The Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our videocast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.